talked about the Skylab strike, the only known to this point work stoppage in, in you know, outside the Earth's uh, atmosphere. And uh, basically they struck because they were being forced to work 16 hour days. It's important that we first understand class uh, because we live under capitalism and in order to really change things, we have to unite the largest numbers we can. And the biggest grouping that we have to work with is the working class. It's one thing to serve folk, to serve them a hot meal and give them a genuine welcome, to offer a free medical service and what's more important in our incredibly expensive and unaccessible healthcare system, free dental. We did that. It's another issue to ask why so many folk don't have access to good medical and dental care. Why so many folks are hungry? Why so many folks are living on the streets? And the complaint was made by the UAW side, by one of the negotiation reps. You know, we really are getting tired of you outsourcing our work to Mexico. And the answer by the GM, you know, suit, was, well, you know, it's because we have operations in Mexico that we can afford to pay you and give you the benefits that you have here. And that shut it down. Five years ago, people said I was a pessimist because I was a little bit down in the dumps about labor's fortunes. I don't feel that way anymore. I feel hopeful. Welcome to this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm Chris Garlock. To hear more labor shows, go to laborradionetwork.org, where you can search by name, topic, and even location. On this week's show, Jamie McCollum, author of Worked Over, tells Grit Nation about the only strike that's occurred off the earth and how it presents a lot of issues workers on this planet face today. Then, on the Heartland Labor Forum, We hear a lot about the working class, but who's really in it, who isn't, and why does it matter? Special bonus on the show this week, a new labor song feature with a song by Billy Bragg. After many years, Bob Rossi is transitioning out of producing the Willamette Wake Up Labor Report. We wish Bob well and bring you his final show in which Reverend David Wheeler and Joe Rastetter discuss the faith-labor connection and the role of clergy in union activism. My Labor Radio visits with Detroit labor activist Frank Hammer and, on working to live in southwest Washington, Shannon and Harold sit down with two veteran labor reporters to discuss the gains working people made in 2021 and look ahead to what's in store for 2022. Finally, on Labor History in Two. On this day, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But did you know that the Emancipation Proclamation did not actually free enslaved people in the U.S.? That's all ahead on the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Joe Cadwell, the writer, producer, and host of the show. And on this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with professor of sociology at Middlebury College, worker rights activist, and the author of two books on labor, Jamie McCallum. 
Jamie's latest effort titled Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream, addresses the loss of agency the average American worker has in managing their work-life balance and why labor's next big battle may not just be about wages, but about time, too. Now on to the show. Jamie McCallum, welcome to Grit Nation. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you so much, Jamie, for taking your time to be on the show today. So uh, getting to, to your book, Worked Over, you you started off in space and you talked about the first strike that actually happened off the planet. And you were talking about the uh, the astronauts. Was it 1973 that were working? Yeah, that, some incredible I mean, hours? that was actually, yeah, that was the heart of it. The, the time we're talking about. That was the Skylab, the Skylab strike, the only known to this point, work stoppage in, in, you know, outside the Earth's uh, atmosphere. And uh, basically they struck because they were being forced to work 16-hour days when they're up there because they can't be up there forever. So NASA likes them to put in a lot of hours when they are up there and uh, for all kinds of safety reasons, whatever. But these guys were really worked to the bone and they had, for whatever reason, a kind of humanistic sensibility. And they're like, we just want to chill out and look at Earth and look at the sun or whatever. As I said in the book, they enjoyed an incredible amount of power because no one could tell them otherwise. Like they were literally, if your boss is looking over your shoulder and telling you to you know, work faster or whatever, do this, do that, you have to do it. If they're in Texas and you're, you're orbiting the earth, it's really, they have no power over you. They, they got what they wanted. Um, they, they shut off the radio, schedule. they took a day off, and then they, uh, they fired it back up the next day. Yeah, and they, and they got what they wanted. And it was not only about the hours too, like they were being surveilled secretly and so when houston found out that they were being i forget what it was what their actual infraction was they struck partly over the surveillance mechanism too and today it's a perfect metaphor which is why i started the book because today workplace surveillance is like it's gone gangbusters the pandemic has only increased it and so and it's a really big a major factor in all workplaces today so yeah, that micromanagement, we call it bird dogging out in the field. As we know, you can, there there is sort of a, a peak performance that someone can give on a daily basis and just being expected to, to be at, at 110% all day long is really an unrealistic expectation. You know, there's a lot of evidence that shows that like when workers have more power on the job, like more stuff gets done in less time. There's a lot of arbitrary decisions that go into figuring out how long people, quote, unquote, have to work to secure whatever it is. If you're told you have to work this long and this fast because we have this many customers in the store, if you're a grocery sacker, well, just what happens if you work a little slower or a little less? Like what really actually transpires, right? People wait an extra two or three minutes to get their, to leave the grocery store. That's basically it. And so the scheduling mechanism by which people are scheduled today and put to work are pretty, well, they're brutal for one thing in terms of their intensity, but they're also incredibly automated. And automation, you know, has its merits, but so far few people can find out what they would be in a scheduling context. Yeah, when you're using um, an algorithm to schedule people's lives that are denying them sort of accessibility right. to pre-established work hours. And I right, think it's exactly. one of the main premises of your book. And if I'm if I can boil it down into three different parts, my understanding of of worked over. The first part is we are being asked to work way too many hours. The second one is that we have no control over our schedules. And then yeah. also sometimes 
sometimes we're actually being underworked, which seems like it'd be a little bit of a, a misnomer. Well, geez, if you're not working too much and you're working less, but that can also be very frustrating for people that are trying to achieve medical benefits and they're being kept right under the threshold of enough yeah. hours. So now they're not making very much, they're working less hours. Now they're having to find themselves two to three jobs in order to make ends meet. Does that sound about right in a nutshell? Yeah, sort of the, the that's book? right. Yeah, that sort of triple threat is a dilemma that workers, the working class anyway, face today. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. I look forward to talking to you in the future when you get to your third book written. And thanks again. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. Hi, my name is Chris Mann, and I'll be your host for this segment. Our topic tonight is who is in the working class and why does it matter? Let's get to our guest, Carl Redwood Jr. Okay, welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, Carl. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi, good to be here. Um, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, lived here most of my life. Um, I'm active in a number of different struggles around the Pittsburgh area, but also in struggles uh, uh, that are national and international in context. I'm also active with the Pittsburgh Black Worker Center and a number of other organizations here in Pittsburgh. Why is it important for us to recognize who we are? that we are in a in a working class why is it important for all workers to recognize that and and then go forward yeah i think it's important that we first understand class uh because we live under capitalism and in order to really change things we have to unite the largest numbers we can and the biggest grouping that we have to work with is the working class However, there's not one single definition of what the working class is or what class is in general. Uh, So we have to get a little bit clearer on what we mean when we say class and and figure out how we can move forward. The other thing that's important to understand is when we talk about working class or class, sometimes we can fall into this false struggle between whether it's a class struggle or a racial struggle. And it's important that we understand that those aren't necessarily contradictory or working against each other because the system we're fighting against is a racial capitalist system uh, that we have to work work around. But 
but bringing the as bringing as broad as possible of forces together in order to really change the system requires us to think about class and uh, how we can uh, unite the largest number of folks uh, in order to win in changing a system that doesn't work for the vast majority of our people. Now, class can mean a lot of different things. The traditional concept of class is class is related to the, the, the quote, ownership of the means of production, that kind of thing. And if you don't own it, you're in the working class. If you own it, you're in the capitalist class. That, that, that's simple and that really worked when most people worked in factories. But today that's really changed a lot. Uh, the majority of our people don't work in, in factories. And for some of us in some communities, the majority of our people don't work at all. So that's we're really facing a new type of economy. So our understanding of class has to has to catch up with the times in a sense. And what we what we have studied is uh, a conception of class that was put forward by a group called Left Roots that looked at class as how individuals and groups relate to exploitation the process of exploitation, as opposed to how you relate to the means of production or the ownership of factories and those kinds of things. So with that conception, it's a different conception of class that really looks at how, how we are exploited. And there's differences among the working class at how different layers of the working class uh, experience that exploitation. Um, so in one in this particular formulation, there are a number of different layers of the working class. Uh, but first, we have to realize the working class is the largest class formation in the United States. Um, and in order to survive, people have to sell their labor power in order to get what they need to take care of their families. Um, there's an upper layer of the working class and the clearest definition I can give right now, there were many doctors that used to have their own practice and they work for themselves, they were their own company. It got harder and harder for many doctors to do that. So a lot of doctors started to work for hospitals. So they went from being a capitalist, a small capitalist, to becoming an upper layer of the working class where, where now they work for a hospital, they receive a paycheck, they get their health insurance through whatever that mechanism is. So they went from being their owner to becoming a worker. And there's a number of folks in that, in that area and they may have higher incomes, like the old class conception, sometimes we think of just people with higher incomes or in one class or another, but I would characterize folks with higher incomes that work for somebody else, even though they have higher incomes, they're still part of the working class. The key thing about the working class coming together is when we put all those layers together, it's the vast majority of people in the United States, in the world, and in our families when we think about it. So if we can unite larger segments of this majority, we can move things and change things. But in order to do that, we have to have a different vision and we have to really challenge some of the, the thinking that we've learned about what's supposed to happen and how the American dream and all those other things that were, are, are, we've been taught and are in our brains, they're not necessarily really working anymore for the vast majority of our families. I'm Mark Galis. Tonight we begin an occasional feature called Labor Song of the Month. For more than a hundred years, the labor movement has produced a treasure trove of great songs, from union-specific rallying cries, to biographical sketches of labor leaders, to true protest songs pointing out the iniquities of the corporate workplace, 
and demanding resolution through organizing and other concerted activity. Tonight's song is Between the Wars by Billy Bragg, an English singer-songwriter and political activist. Bragg mixes folk and punk influences to create vivid tales of class struggle and anti-war sentiments. When I asked about the political nature of his songs, he said, I don't mind being labeled a political songwriter. The thing that troubles me is being dismissed as a political songwriter. Bragg is probably best known in this country for his collaboration with the rock band Wilco in the late 90s and early 2000s. That project was a three-volume set of recordings called Mermaid Avenue, which put music to previously unheard lyrics by Woody Guthrie, something of a political songwriter himself. Between the Wars was inspired by the year-long miners' strike in the UK in 1984 and 85. It is a plea to government to focus on the needs and rights and contributions of workers, instead of the usual government focus on the business of defense and war. From 1985, here's Billy Bragg with Between the Wars. with Between the Wars. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Jen Zaman. When I graduated high school, I had a plan to 
show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back too. Send us your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to heartlandlaborformkkfi at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming schedule, is heartlandlaborform.org. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI, or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening to the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 o'clock or to our Friday morning rebroadcast at 5 o'clock right here at 90.1 FM KKFI. and friends. This is Bob Berto Rossi back with another Willamette Wake Up Labor segment. I want to end our year and begin a new year on a hopeful note. I connected with Dr. David Wheeler and Joe Rastatter through Portland Jobs with Justice to make this happen. Uh, Today's visit is going to be about the connection between faith communities and the labor movement. And I hope that we're going to ring out the old and ring in the new with a call to faith and action that touches all of our listeners. Dr. David Wheeler is currently a minister at the First Baptist Church of Portland and is a professor of theology and ethics at Palmer Eastern Baptist Seminary in Philadelphia via an internet-based program. He has a long and distinguished career that includes having worked as a staff organizer for the Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice in Los Angeles and has served as a volunteer for the Faith Labor. Welcome to KMUZ, brothers. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, I know that some of our listeners have no idea what we're talking about. Are you able to bring your congregations along with you as you do the work? The congregation that I served for 11 years in downtown Portland, I actually have been succeeded by a newer, younger pastor and have returned full-time to theological education. But the congregation I served was probably, I would say, center-right, whereas I'm definitely left of center in my politics and much of my theology. And so it was tough. We had conversations with congregational leaders. It was difficult to get my local congregation. All Baptist churches are local. There's not a a bishop or a hierarchy or anything to tell us what to do. It was tough. Some folks were very sympathetic. Uh, They were union members themselves, are working class themselves. Other folks were management and not as sympathetic, but a lot of the 
best conversations were one-on-one or small group conversations. And the support that I was able, that I've been able to lift up from my congregations over the years has been individuals who caught the vision. To answer you, Bob, and everyone, it's certainly not easy. I have been involved for many years, most recently at the Progressive Catholic Parishes in Portland, which would be uh, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Andrew. So I would be the one at St. Francis for the many years, once or twice a month, making an announcement after Mass and urging people to participate in my different causes that we all support with our heart, but only one or two or three people could break loose to actually show up. On the other hand, we we had a dining hall ministry where we we serve five days a week or six days a week, actually meals to the houseless people. And we provided health care and lockers and all kinds of good hospitality work. We referred to those people as our guests. And so that kind of consumes St. Francis. Unfortunately, in the last couple of years, all our uh, progressive folks needed to leave the church with a, a decision made by the Catholic Archdiocese to prevent ourselves from being ourselves. So anyway, St. Francis, both the church and its dining hall ministry, as we've known it, no longer exists. So that's been a, a painful story I won't uh, elaborate on. Many of our folks have gone to St. Andrew Parish, which has um, a, also a very long history of, of doing social justice and peace activist uh, type work. But Bob, darn it, it's, uh, it's not easy. But whether we've been successfully able to make inroads to the congregations, the people sitting there, I'd say no. I, I think what we need is a, a great social justice movement. And it, we're not a movement yet. We're still at that stage of developing individual relationships with people and going to a lot of meetings, etc. This is not a new issue, Bob, I would say. In the Baptist tradition, there are heroes of social justice. Martin Luther King Jr. was known for his civil rights activism and rightly, but also particularly later in his career, was an advocate for economic justice. It's always been a minority position. And and in First Baptist Portland, for instance, we've been feeding folks, several hundred folks a week for 30 years now. And for 10 years of my ministry, we did a free medical clinic. But it's one thing to serve to serve them a hot meal and give them a genuine welcome to offer a free medical service. And what's more important in our incredibly expensive and unaccessible healthcare system, free dental. We did that. It's another issue to ask why so many folk don't have access to good medical and dental care why so many folks are hungry, why so many folks are living on the streets. In my tradition, folks are kind and loving for the most part, and they're willing to help, but they're not as willing to confront the systemic issues. I teach over the years hundreds of students, and I try to awaken them to the structural issues of their faith, not just personal piety, but pushing back against what the Uh, Christian New Testament calls the principalities and powers. So I'm hoping that uh, the generation I'm having the privilege of training will do better. Thank you, brothers. I want to thank you both, Dr. David Wheeler and Joe Rastetter, for your time and for your work. Uh, Thanks. Can the congregation say union strong? Union strong. Thank you. And now, here's your next episode of My Labor Radio.
Oh, thank you, folks. Thank you. I do appreciate that. And we appreciate your support throughout the year. We try and do about 26 or so episodes every year, and 2021 has come to a close. Welcome to 2022. We hope you had a great holiday season. I am always proud of the episodes we've done, and this one specifically has some information that UAW members are going to want. I talk with Frank Hammer. Who is that? Well, Frank Hammer is a UAW guy from Local 909 in Warren, Michigan. And if you don't know, that's suburban Detroit. So Frank has been around for a few years. He's done this a little bit. He's originally educated at the University of California, Berkeley, and then he moved to Ann Arbor to do some more schooling and then ends up joining the blue-collar workforce and working at the transmission plant that's no longer there at Local 909. Works his way through and ascends to a president's position. He was a VP for a while. Has done a little bit of everything there. Let's take you to my interview with Frank Hammer. So how's life treating you? I mean, I look into Local 909 and and see it's a closed facility altogether in that the hall isn't even functioning. Is that correct? Both the uh, GM powertrain plant has been sold and the local uh, hall has also been sold. It was sold by uh, the UAW Region 1. Yep. Some investors bought it. I have no idea about its future. And I heard that there are there was another company that bought the uh, the plant. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's history. Yeah, that's amazing. I was um, when our local opened in Fort Wayne. Owen Bieber was president at the time. He came there, and the one thing that stood out to me when he said welcome everybody, they brought the media in, was it was wonderful because it was 1989. It was wonderful to be opening a union hall because he had closed so many, and you know that still transpires today. If you're talking about the number for the UAW as a whole, yes, in 1979, which was our peak membership year, we had 1.5 million members. Okay. And as you're saying, I mean, we're talking about a decline. And now my understanding is the number hovers around 400,000. Mm-hmm. Today. And re- yeah. And so looking at less than, you know, you think you break that down among different groups, your deer group, your, you know, ag imp folks, and then smaller groups from there to your heavy machinery, as well as your Stellantis now used to be Chrysler, Ford and General Motors and break that down among those. The other number I'm usually fond of citing is that back in the day, GM alone was over 425,000 UAW members. That's bigger than our entire UAW today. Yeah. Wow. I do remember um, you did interviews with The Real News. And in one of the segments that I watched, you talked about how they're at the negotiations table talking about whether it's workers in Mexico or workers in China didn't matter. But if we didn't work there, we couldn't pay you the wages and benefits was General Motors statement. And that brought silence to the room. That caught your attention, huh? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> so uh, the setting was: I was on, I was on the UAWGM staff. The year was 2003. We were in negotiations. I was, uh, I was on the umpire staff. The umpire staff actually had the responsibility of making sure that every I was dotted and every T was crossed in the whole agreement. So it was quite a, quite an undertaking. And I have to say that we did a, you know, a really stellar job, but as part of that, I was sat in on several subcommittees, uh, some that I was mainly an audience and others that where I actually participated. But this one was about outsourcing and there was a subcommittee on outsourcing that maybe were uh, 16 uh, people, eight set to a side in negotiations, mm-hmm. discussions about uh, outsourcing. 
And the complaint was made by the UAW side, by one of the negotiation reps. You know, we really are getting tired of you outsourcing our work to Mexico. As if to put forward a demand, you know, we want you to stop it uh, and preserve some more of the U.S. jobs. And the answer by the GM, you know, suit was, well, you know, it's because we have operations in Mexico that we can afford to pay you and give you the benefits that you have here. And that shut it down. I mean, the room got quiet and then it just moved on. And I thought that uh, witnessing this, that it really, really, really illustrates a lot of you know, the compromise uh, that, uh, and a lot of U.S. unions are faced with this, the compromise that they make, that oh, on the one hand, we have a responsibility to service our membership and get them the best that we can. You can think about that in short term. Yeah, we right. get elected every three, four years. Or you can think about that in the long term. And it was, you know, it was short term. So, well, we are benefiting. And, well, I guess, you know, we'll have to sacrifice our brothers and sisters in Mexico. So that is the uh, that is a, a, a great dilemma. We are the only program in Northeast Indiana that will bring you labor news and talk about unions. Tune in to My Labor Radio every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m. on WELT 95.7 FM, the voice of working families. You can find out more at mylaborradio.org. Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode 26 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. I'm Shannon Myers. And I'm Harold Phillips. We've got the Northwest's premier labor journalists with us who've been watching all this worker energy over the past few months. Let's welcome Don McIntosh. Don, what do you do at the Northwest Labor Press? So I'm basically a labor reporter. For the last 22 years, I've told the stories of our local labor movement and to some extent the national labor movement. We've also got David Groves, editor-in-chief of The Stand. We are so glad that the two of you are here to talk about this because it has been an amazing year for labor, hasn't it? I think it has. I do what I like, maybe just caution a little bit. There's a danger of getting into a little bit of a hype about strikes. That said, I really am seeing a different climate in a whole lot of ways. We had the Gallup polling organization this year show that basically unions have the highest support levels they've had since 1965. What I'm seeing a lot of, first of all, we're in a very tight labor market. The economy has rebounded. Everybody who wants to work for the most part is back on the job. And employers are having a hard time finding people to employ. So I think that puts us in a very strong situation. We're seeing um, wage gains in collective bargaining like I have not seen or reported on for decades, actually. And part of that, I'm convinced, is a renewed willingness to strike by organized working people. You know, we've had decades of fear, I think, of striking based on what happened in the 1980s. But something is maybe tipping the other way now. We're seeing a very widely publicized national strikes as well as local strikes. In the Portland area, for example, we had a very successful campaign by the painters. They ended up getting uh, $4 an hour after some pretty smart series of chaotic strikes they called the Summer of Chaos. We also saw the folks at Mondelez Nabisco beat back the traditional sort of uh, give me more tactics by Nabisco. They wanted a two-tier arrangement where new hires would be paid less. And those folks struck and had tremendous public support and beat that back. These are increases, the kind of which, as I say, we have really not seen since the 1990s. I think there's something in the air, and I'm very excited. Uh, maybe five years ago, people said I was a pessimist because I was a little bit down in the dumps about labor's fortunes. I don't feel that way anymore. I feel hopeful. And David, is it the same up in the Washington area? 
I think it is. I think that the phenomenon that we've been experiencing this year, uh, you've seen a lot written about it. I think it's called the great resignation about people reassessing their lives during the pandemic and during the lockdowns and having their work experience disrupted and working virtually. I think that what the employers would describe as a worker shortage is, in fact, just a reluctance to people to go back to crappy jobs. And um, right now, that's what people that are fortunate enough to already belong to a union have realized that they're in a great position to demand the best contract they've ever negotiated. And that's why we're seeing it happen. Just like Don said, lots of unions are taking strike authorization votes and they're passing unanimously. And oftentimes they're settling contracts right at the 11th hour that include wage increases, the likes of which they've never gotten before. The same thing is happening up here in Washington with the electrical workers and with many other in the building trades this past year. What are the stories that you're going to be looking at as we move into 2022? I think that one of the main stories is going to be the same story from 2020 and 2021, and that's this pandemic. With the new variants, there's no question that this is going to be with us for the long term. I think that Unions have played an important role in educating their members about the safety and efficacy of vaccines, and unions have done a great job of advocating for safer workplaces to make sure that there are real standards in place that can protect people as best as possible when they have to go to work and uh, interface with others. Oh, gosh. As for me, obviously, we'll certainly be covering the political goings on. I mean, there's a short session of our legislature in Oregon early next year, and then it'll be political season. And I think labor is going to take a big role, as it usually does, in trying to get uh, union-friendly, working people-friendly candidates elected. You know, one thing we're seeing that's a little scary is uh, major climate events. Last year, we had in our area this thing called a heat dome, and quite frankly, it was terrifying. I don't think that's the last one we'll see, and I think the response to that in terms of worker safety, uh, exposure to heat, and exposure to smoke in the case of the wildfires that we're now, apparently that's a new season in the Northwest. We have wildfire season now. I think this is something we're going to have to contend with. Thank you so much for joining us, Don McIntosh, Senior Reporter at the Northwest Labor Press, and David Groves, Communications Director for the Washington State Labor Council and Editor-in-Chief of The Stand. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having me as well. And thank you, working people, for joining us on another episode of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. Let's keep standing together. We'll see you next year. Bye. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This date in 1863 is one of the most often misunderstood days in American history. On this day, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But did you know that the Emancipation Proclamation did not actually free enslaved people in the U.S.? Instead, the proclamation only freed those enslaved people located in rebelling states of the South. Since Lincoln's Union forces did not yet control those areas, the proclamation could not immediately end slavery for anyone. One of the goals of the proclamation was to encourage black Southerners to join the Union forces. Lincoln stated, And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed services of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places 
and to man vessels of all sort in said service. By the end of the war, nearly 200,000 black men fought with the Union. What the Emancipation Proclamation did accomplish was make it explicit that ending slavery was an aim of the Civil War. It moved the nation one step closer to a system based on free labor. It was an important step in the long and unfinished project of equality in the United States. Writing about the impact of Lincoln's address, historian John Hope Franklin declared, and one can only hope that sooner rather than later, we can all find the courage to live under the spirit of the Emancipation Proclamation and under the laws that flowed from its inspiration. I'm Rick Smith, and this has been Labor History in Two. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. That'll do it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Happy New Year, stay active, and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Mm-hmm.